This podcast is part one of two about constructing a concept model on baseball. Who is this podcast for? If you want to perfect an idea or your business, your technology, your script, or your creative endeavor by getting to the heart or essence of something like never before, you've come to the right place. It is also for those who happen to love baseball, trivia, or the eureka moment, that moment of discovery. But that is all icing on the cake. Here you can start to learn how to perfect anything. How is this done? Don't worry if this sounds heady or fuzzy. It actually isn't. We use a discipline grounded in how the abstract world actually works. Meaning not just how the physical world works, but how the abstract world dictates how the physical world functions. That is the secret to perfecting anything. It is a discipline called concept modeling. It was founded by your host, Winston Perez, who works on Hollywood movies, high-end tech, and businesses. That's me, by the way. What is the takeaway? In this podcast, there's a ton of insights, deeper knowledge, even trivia, and a lot of fun. This is based on Winston's book concerning the nature and structure of concept. Woohoo! I got a plug-in. Here's another point. We take our time. So sit back, enjoy it, relax. We start with the obvious and we end with it. Why? Because the obvious isn't. Here's a quick outline. The obvious is an intro. Then segment one, simple enough, a baseball versus a softball. Segment two, baseball. What's up with that? Segment three, attributes and Brady's home team advantage. Segment four, relationships, and yes, disruptive technology in baseball. Segment five, the hidden concept at the core of baseball. Segment six, why concept matters, and a look at how we can use this baseball concept model to fix the massive issues in baseball origin history, the stuff that is a foul ball, off base, out in left field. And that will lead us to part two of this podcast. A quick note. For the podcast, we call segments innings. Why? It's baseball. Let's get going. Are you curious about, well, everything? Do you crave that classic mind-bending eureka moment? Do you enjoy deconstructing the you-know-what out of everyday and not everyday stuff? Well then, this podcast is absolutely categorically not the place for you. Well, I'm just kidding, but not completely. And you probably sense it, don't you? There has to be something deeper. This podcast is for those who crave that something deeper, something way deeper. The truth is trivia becomes trivial after a time. And deconstruction? Well, it centers on the physical world, which has its limits. The deeper source of all of it comes from the abstract world, something we know so little about. 
but let me make this simple. Think of it not as the what or how, but the deeper question, the why. Here is a quote I'm known for. Ideas and concepts are two separate things. In fact, they're housed in two separate worlds. If you think that quote is not obvious, well, it is. If you think that quote is obvious, it isn't. The obvious isn't. And that paradox, if you give it time, is what the show is about. It's about what causes the insights and trivia. But it goes way deeper because it'll change the way you understand the abstract engineering behind creation, the physical world, and reality itself. This will literally change the way you understand why things are the way they are. And going deeper, it'll change the way you think forever. But enough with that heady stuff. We'll be right back, and then we'll have some fun. Let's rock this concept thing. This is The Obvious Visit, and I'm your host, Winston Perez. First inning. Simple enough, a baseball versus a softball. Today, we're going to walk through a concept model on baseball. What that means is we're going to look at the sport from a new angle in an even deeper way. Think of it like letting baseball itself tell us its own story and reveal its deeper and wonderful secrets. Let's start with this. I'm going to ask you to use your imagination. In my right hand, I'm holding up a baseball. In my left hand, I'm holding up a softball. Both are kind of cool, right? There are three obvious things here. And in keeping with today's theme, here is my first pitch. The first thing that is obvious is that the sports are related, right? And if you look at the shape, the stitching, perhaps the size, relatively speaking, they look similar. You can see that. It's obvious. And if you know a little bit about the history, you know that baseball preceded softball as a sport. So right off the bat, you totally know that a softball originated from a baseball. That again is obvious, right? Well, guess what? I just threw you a curveball. You popped it up and you are... You're up. The true origin of softball came from something else. A boxing glove. So let me offer you an origin story for softball as a warm-up exercise on this type of analysis. And again, since our theme is baseball, let me show you the playing field for our story here. It's a cloudy day in old Chicago. We're by the lake. It's 1887. It's a dreary day. The sky is gray. Chill is in the air. But it's not enough to keep some from changing their plans. Right now, as we watch, droplets of rain are settling in. Perhaps just a few, then it gets more constant. The rain hitting the waters is becoming a rhythmic, gentle background soundtrack to this now sleepy day. A few guys, a couple years out of college, are now milling around inside the Farragut boat house. But let me stop. First, from what you've heard so far, what does that tell you? What insights can we gain from the story so far? Think about it. Think conceptually. What does that tell you? It means it probably wasn't raining at first. 
That is important. Why go there to a boathouse on a lake otherwise? Now, I'm not saying they were going to go boating. It was cold out there, and the season was probably over. But these guys were all into boating. They were there to wait as one of their buddies finished some work on one of the boats housed there. But the rain forces them inside. Point number two. The boathouse is just down from the boat club. Inside the Farragut Boat Club, there are parlors, a reception area, a card room, a ball or dancing room, even a theater. A bowling alley, a gym, and a pool room are in the basement. It's kind of cool to hang out there, and there's a bigger group of guys there. As one online history states, they were there to listen to a game between Harvard and Yale. Hmm. Listen? That is important to our concept modeling work, as we will see a bit later. Some of them are alumni from Yale. Some of them are alumni from Harvard. One guy there is a reporter from the Chicago Board of Trade. Back to the boathouse. The guys are still milling around there, looking at the boats, some equipment, supplies perhaps, ropes, when one of them eyes a boxing glove near a broken oar. One of them casually picks up the glove and tosses it to the other. The glove flies okay, and it's kind of hittable when you think about it. Stickball, anyone? He takes the glove and begins to roll it up in a ball, while the other picks up the broken oar. But just as suddenly, their other friend says, I'm done. Let's get out of here. It's cold. So they decide to join the others up at the boat club and see what's going on with that football game. They bring the boxing glove with them. The bigger group is probably gathered in one of the parlors. It's a bigger group. To make this long story short, one of the boathouse buddies, a guy who went to Yale, Yale had just beaten Harvard, looks around the room spotting a Harvard buddy holding probably a cane or more likely an umbrella. He then nudges his fellow boathouse buddy and smiles. He knows what's going to happen next. That one guy calls out to his buddy, raises the glove, readies him, then sends the boxing glove flying his way. The Harvard guy, not on skill, bats it away. Not too far, not too bad. All of that happens as that reporter, George Hancock, observes it and yells, Play ball! Hancock goes and picks up the glove as light goes on inside his head. He takes the glove laces, wraps it tight, and into a ball. The approximate size of, you guessed it, a softball. That moment would be the beginning of the sport of softball. And that reporter would soon be instrumental in getting all of it going. So at its incarnation, the sport is basically an indoor version of baseball. But using this next thing, later called a softball. And here's the concept or essence of it. That soft quality came from the texture of a boxing glove. A new sport is launched. So with that knowledge, when you look at the softball back in my left hand and the boxing glove in my right, you can imagine it. Or better still, you can almost feel it. In terms of the size and texture, a softball truly is more like a boxing glove. You could feel that if you had one in your hand and you gripped it, that softer feel. And obviously, that softness inspired the name softball. 
and you wouldn't get there from a baseball. And you actually already know why. Because a baseball is often called the exact opposite. Let's play hardball. Now that, for me, is kind of cool. So here's my pitch. First, this is a great example why you need to concept model things first. It is also a great example of what this show is about. The obvious isn't. Even in the simplest of things, like a softball, can you get any simpler? There's something obvious and there's something that isn't. The obvious isn't applied to baseball is next. Up to the stadium booth for some inning takeaways. Inconsistencies in softball history. One online history suggests those Farragut Boat Club members were listening to a football game. That was not possible. Marconi's discovery was two years away, and it was probably 20 to 30 years from launching radio in the U.S. markets. It was ticker tape, some say telegraph. Now, some of the histories got that right, but here's the point. Stay alert. Point two. Most online histories say the sport was invented in the Farragut Clubhouse. I suspect the boathouse played a part for four reasons. Number one, certain circumstantial concepts have to be in place, like indoor, round, a recognizable ball, and a recognizable hit. Indoor, it had to be raining or major threat of it to get the idea of indoor baseball going. Yeah, it was cold, but adding a little bout of rain would have encouraged the indoor play. Round. And let me just stress, this one is mainly my opinion only. I believe the boxing glove probably had to be pretty round already when the Yale guy tossed it inside the boat club. In fact, I actually believe the guys in the boathouse made the glove round first. Otherwise, you have to believe that some Yale guy threw a glove at a Harvard guy who had time to recognize it as a ball, pick up a stick from somewhere else in the room, and then hit it. The timing in that just doesn't work for me. And no way was that stick a broom handle, as some histories suggest. Also, boxing gloves were very elongated and very odd shaped in those days. Perhaps easy to connect with, but definitely awkward to hit well. Bottom line, there had to be enough in that event for George Hancock to recognize the baseball concept in that ball throw and hit action. The nature of innovation. Most innovations require a small group, not a large group. In baseball history, you generally get two steps. You see the guys and gals playing the game first, then second, the guys who organize and codify it. So you probably had a few guys just having fun in the boat house, then you have the guy who sees the potential and organizes it in the boat club where they then play it with a bigger group and perhaps the ballroom. Decorum. That clubhouse had rules of decorum that the boathouse would not have had, especially with food and drinks present. Bottom line. Many, if not most, origin stories are apocryphal, including the one I just told you. And later, I found what could be supporting evidence for the boathouse. The stone monument or memorial to softball reads the Farragut Boat House, not the Farragut Boat Club. 
but let me just say it. In the end, either way is fine. This was just an exercise of analyzing things from a conceptual point of view. Now here's the concept modeling takeaway for that inning. In concept modeling, we never take anything, even the most basic of things, for granted. We'll be right back. Second inning. Baseball, what's up with that? We're back to our concept modeling on the sport of baseball. But now, I may have a problem with a lot of you listening out there because I threw that last curveball question to you on the basis of the origin of a softball. It's a problem because the next question is actually even more obvious. And you'd be surprised how many people think I'm trying to trick them when I ask this. But let's relax about it. Let's answer the obvious question with an obvious answer. So what is the one thing you must have to play baseball? There are many things you need, but this one is at the top of the pyramid. The most important physical thing you need to play baseball. And yes, like a fly ball, it pops into your mind almost immediately. A ball. Most of you are ready to use this technical term and say, duh, but hang in there. Stay in our game. It's about to get very interesting. What is the second most obvious item you need in playing the sport of baseball? Go back to your sixth grade. School is finished for the day. You have some extra time before the sun sets. You and your buddies are looking for something fun to do. So you turn to one of them and say something like, Hey, Charlie, go get your baseball. I'll go get a bat. And that's the answer. Bat. So now, here's where it gets interesting, at least from a concept modeling perspective, because you gotta ask, why isn't it called bat ball? Baseball? What's up with that? Base? And now think of it from the bat's perspective. In fact, using the stadium of your imagination, we're going to go back now to the year 1846, right after the very first game of baseball was played. Our sports reporter is there and about to interview none other than Mr. Bat. Here it is. This is Joe Smithy reporting, and I must say I do it accurately. We're here in Hoboken, New Jersey, June 19th, 1846, where the very first official baseball game was just completed, right here. Well, to be accurate, it's right over there. Oh, about 50 yards from here. Well, hold on. Let, let me get this act. Well, yes, it was about 52 yards from where I stand, or where I was standing. Oh, hold on, let me just take a few steps over to the side right here. Ah, accuracy is my trademark. Now, about 52 yards, hold on, I forgot to recalculate given I stood right there instead of here. Okay, about 50 yards from where the first game of baseball was ever played. Well, to be accurate, some say the second baseball game officially ever played. That's because the same Knickerbockers 
back last year in 1845. Oh, I won't go into that. Here on this day, right over there, 50 yards, not 52 yards, the New York Times beat the pants off the Knickerbockers 23 to 1. Let me tell you something. You know, I think that's why the Knickerbockers want that 1845 game they played last year to be the very first official baseball game. That way, they start out baseball history on a good note. That's what I think. Well, all the players have left the field, but I'm standing here with one of the most critical, incredible, one should say, game-changing participants. You would call yourself a participant, yes? Oh, yeah. Yes, Mr. Bat. How did the game go for you? Okay, I guess. Just okay? That's very interesting. Don't you know you have a big career in front of you? I mean, every kid in America is going to take one of you home. Having great players sign you, take pictures with you. I mean, your future is endless. Okay, okay, I guess. I still don't understand, but hold on. Oh. Um, I guess I do understand. You take quite a beating, Mr. Bat, right? Quite a beating. But isn't that your job? Is that what you're upset about? No, no, no. Well then, what are you upset about, Mr. Bat? Well, I want to know why it isn't called Bat Ball. So you're saying it should be called not baseball, but Bat Ball. Now that is interesting. Hold on a second. Tell them I walked the 50 yards myself. Actually, 52 yards. I am a reporter. I need to get this right. Jeez. Sorry, I'm back. So that is an interesting point. Even if other people around here don't think so, this has to be accurate, Mr. Matt. Explain that to me. Baseball? Base? Why not bat ball? I mean, I do have the work, you know. I'm in on every play, every pitch, every inning. I get picked up, swung around all the time. I smack the ball when I can, and I make home runs possible. Base, he don't do nothing. He just sits there. Ain't nobody going to take him home or give him a brand name like Louisville Slugger. All the base does is sit there some 90 feet away, 90 feet from home plate, doing nothing. Oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Why isn't it called bat ball? You, Mr. Bat, have a point. But can I ask you a question? Hmm. You see, you being an inanimate object brought to life by my imagination, can I still ask you something? How far is it to first base from home plate in yards? Not feet, yards. Is 90 feet the same as 50 yards? I gotta be accurate. You understand, Mr. Bad, don't you? Oh, yeah. You know what? I have to go measure that. Let me go do that. Thanks for the interview, Mr. Bat. What? You're spending time on the name? Rounders, baseball, town ball, turf ball. Who cares about the name? Just get on with it. Well, tell him it's important to the game, based on accuracy, even inches. Just tell him that. Okay, we're back. It's true. From the Bat's perspective, it's an interesting point. The other aspect is base. Where does that come from? I'm going to get to that in detail when we get to do a little bit of concept modeling on the history of baseball, because that's where I think a lot of people are off base. (laughs) Pun accidental, but immediately claimed as intentional. But for now, you should consider that it probably comes from two things. The time when bases were actually more important, hard to believe but true, and one game that preceded baseball that many researchers and historians tend to undervalue. 
When we come back, we're going to take another deeper concept modeling step into baseball and define the attributes of a baseball and Brady's home team advantage. We'll be right back. Now up to the stadium booth for some inning takeaways. What should surprise you about the second inning? Here's a big twist. We already hit a home run. I didn't even know that till later when I used bat ball versus baseball to dig into the origin of baseball, which I will cover in part two. I'm just too amazed by it not to at least mention it here. Here's the concept modeling takeaway. If you are in business, technology, or doing something creative, or working on any idea, drop your ego. I have to do that too and ask those embarrassingly obvious questions as if you didn't know the answer, then dig deep. I mean, really deep. And I'm telling it like it is. This is not me doing some marketing thing, how easy it's going to be. In fact, this might triple your workload, but exponentially impact your success, financial, creative, or otherwise. Your pick, less work, follow the marketing line. Oh, it's easy. Or more success. We'll be right back. Third inning. Attributes and Brady's home team advantage. We're back. One heads up note in terms of concept modeling. Guess what? One of those waves I mentioned in the beginning may already be headed our way. A mini Eureka moment may be coming. So if you dig those, those moments of insight or even discovery, they come from simple things looked at a different way, a deeper way. It's kind of fascinating in a way. You already know the answers to these next questions. You already know what the attributes of a baseball are, but change your thinking. Be open. We just don't think this way that often. We just don't think deeply about the things right in front of us. We assume we know them. Of course, I know what a ball is. And then we throw them into the it's obvious bucket. Well, the truth is, you know at least the first three, but there's a fourth one. And that one is literally hard to spot. So when you look at a baseball, what is the most obvious characteristic, the most basic attribute it has? One a baseball is round. It's so obvious, it's hard to see. Amazingly, our minds are not trained to spot the obvious. When it's too obvious, we hesitate. Not everyone does, and not every time. But it's something to note in how we really look at the world. A football is not round. A baseball is. It is that simple, too. It's so obvious, we skip right by it. Round is almost the first thing you have to say about a baseball. It's an attribute. There's more to explore there coming up, but I want to skip to the second attribute, which is also very evident. You notice that a baseball is not just round, it is leather, right? Leather is a second attribute on our lineup. Third attribute, can you think of it? We have round, we have leather. The next attribute, giving you time to guess... A baseball is small. That is the third attribute in our lineup. But the word small is a relative term, right? For example, we introduced this show looking at a small baseball versus a bigger softball. But compared to a basketball, they are both pretty small. D 
Did you ever consider the fact that there's only one size for a baseball, yet there are three sizes for a softball? 11 inches, 12 inches, and 16 inches. Here's a fun side note. The 16-inch size is used for what they call Chicago-style softball, where they sometimes use no gloves. How fun is that? Because Chicago still loves the sport that was launched at the Farragut Boat Club. Baseballs are always the same size. Do you want to know what that size is? Here is the deeper truth. A baseball is the perfect size. And that is true. That is a correct answer. Even more amazing, baseball got to that perfect size, what I would call in concept modeling, the perfected size, without the aid of science. In fact, Relatively speaking, science has only recently discovered and proved that a baseball is indeed the perfect size. But right now, I want to talk Tom Brady stuff, something he personally might find interesting or not. For attributes, we have round, leather, small, and one more, which we will get to. Those four attributes together are the basis for the term home team advantage. (laughs) You see, Mr. Brady... In the early days, as baseball grew in popularity and teams were created, it was always the home team that provided the football, I mean the baseball. This meant they could make their baseballs bigger, smaller, smoother, not so smooth, softer, any way they wanted to. And so if another team was coming to town and they weren't used to a little different feel for the ball, well, maybe it was a little bit squishier or a bit, I guess you could call it, deflated. That would definitely give them a distinct slight home team advantage. You know, kind of deflating the visiting team's hopes a bit. Since the home team was used to their own feel, that would, if only psychologically, give the home team a home team advantage. You know, I guess you could say that was really the American way. They were all Patriots. Kind of makes everything better, doesn't it? Of course, though true, we're having some dugout fun here. I like Tom Brady, not as a team fan, but for his work ethic, which can lead you or anyone to success. And to be candid, really, folks, these guys are paid millions. They're top athletes, and we're wasting ink on all that. In baseball, if you make changes to a ball, it's a huge deal but not in football. Why not treat it like the early days? Visiting teams would just say, you wait, we'll get you. Oh yeah, we will. And folks, all that silliness is like saying no home team crowd should be allowed to make any noise whatsoever since it creates a real home team advantage. A warning was all that was needed. Something like, grow the you-know-what up. All that aside, in fact, all that ball sizing was important. In fact, very important. Small as an attribute of a baseball size was being worked out by trial and error. Different sizes were everywhere, yet all of them eventually were heading to one and only one size as a baseball is today. Concept modeling suggests everything has a tendency to work towards something perfected. And baseball is no different. In other words, when it comes to the concept of small, a baseball was always headed towards a specific size no matter 
what? That size, that perfected size, is the size of the palm of a man's hand. And that matters. In fact, nothing else matters. And you probably have guessed why. It was always headed to the perfect size for pitching and the pitcher and batter duel. It's not the word small that matters. It's the concept or essence of that word in relationship to the sport of baseball. Think of this. The National Baseball Association has six pages describing how a professional baseball must be to be official. But let's get back to that mini Eureka Wave that I mentioned. Let's see if we can generate one, get it coming towards us closer and closer. We have one, two, three, round, leather, small as attributes. Now, can you think of it? And this is the tricky one. What is the fourth attribute of a baseball? If you were to have a baseball in front of you, what is the one characteristic besides those three that you would notice about it? You could roll it around in your hands. You could feel the leather. You could check out the size. But there's one more characteristic coming out of that experience. Can you guess what that is? By the way, I kind of slid it past you a few times. That's the idea that a baseball is hard. Now, when you concept model anything, you have to be open to what your intuition may start to whisper to you or at times even shout at you. I love it because the word hard is not so obvious until it is. And at that very moment, when I was doing my concept model on baseball almost 10 years ago, I felt something. I felt the beginning of a Eureka wave headed in my direction. So stop, see if you can feel it, a wave coming and headed towards your mind. I don't know if it is, and this is not some foo-foo stuff. It's just that for some of you, Listening and hearing this for the first time, the word hard seems to have something deeper about it as it applies to baseball. Hard. Is there something deeper there? Absolutely. By the way, email me at info at conceptmodeling.com if you experience a bit of what I'm talking about right now, if you have that feeling. I'd be curious. And sorry if I have to digress here for a moment, because that Eureka wave is created by our intuition. And in concept modeling, I use my intuition all the time. A well-trained intuition is incredibly helpful. I explain it in my book concerning the nature and structure of concept. Gotta get a plug-in somewhere. And I use intuition as an abstract sense. I use my hand to touch physical things. I use my intuition to touch abstract things. Intuition along with the nature of concept, is what makes the Eureka moment a reality. Back to hard. In this case, my intuition suggested there was something unique about that word. So in my concept model presentation, I actually separated it out. And that was before I understood what made that attribute so unique. First, is the fact that hard, as a term, kind of captures the other attributes and kind of glues them all together into perfection. Like the physical baseball itself, it's the thing that stitches it all together. Second, the word hard is a unique concept when applied to baseball. Why? Because a baseball is not really hard. Yet it is. 
I love that apparent contradiction. That's because it's more of a quality and a quality that, again, is unique to baseball. And again, this is one of those obvious isn't things because you could call it hard, but at the same time, this leather texture feel makes it slightly less than hard. To illustrate the point, what if the baseball were actually a golf ball made into the size of a baseball? That would really be a hard ball. And you know it because you'd have players breaking way more bats, breaking their shins and arms, even their elbows wide open. It would have infielders breaking their hands trying to slow a ground ball, and occasionally players just knocked out completely, if not killed, by a ball being thrown or hit at them. It would just not be possible to play the sport safely with a baseball-sized golf ball. So that's obvious, then why still use the word hard? That's the amazing thing I didn't see. I just took it for granted till I connected the dots. This quality of hard, particular to a baseball, is more likely the reason this synonym for baseball stuck. Baseball is called hardball, and it works. It works so well that like softball, hardball could actually work as a sports name. For the record, I love the name baseball, and I like it better, but that's not the point. This is. The word hardball captures the round, the leather, and the small, the attributes unified into the whole, even better than the actual word baseball does. I'm sure Mr. Bat would be happy to hear that. Yeah. And there is an element to the concept of hard that is so unique to the sport. It's so cool. Almost every player loves to say it. Hey, let's play some hardball. It's not too hard, the safe, but you can still handle it. You kind of sense that. Like James Bond, we all want to be tough, but only up to a point. That point that we can handle it. A baseball is as hard as it can be without being too dangerous. That hardness quality is impacted not only by the round and the small, obviously because it's made of leather. Hard is what makes the pitcher and batter duel at the heart of the game possible. We're talking about the curveball, the home run, just to name two. And if you're in a baseball park and there's a fly ball headed your way, you can actually attempt to catch it with your bare hands. It might sting a little, but you'll survive. And boy, isn't that worth the price of admission. And isn't that another reason people love to go to the ballpark? hoping to catch a fly ball someday. So when you look at the core elements of baseball as a sport, hard is actually there at the core. And to me, that was the eureka moment. It's called hardball and it's stuck for a reason, not just as a side note, not just as a throwaway term. That is cool. And did you catch it? It's amazing. It's unexpected. There are a few other sports where you have a nickname. What's a nickname for football, for hockey, for soccer? Anyone? Anyone? Yeah, a couple of you might be thinking B-ball, but that's an abbreviation. There is no F-ball, S-ball, H-ball, and the like. And it just might be that baseball started the whole nickname thing in sports. Did you know that Giants and Pirates were actually nicknames first before they became official names for teams? And who doesn't remember this guy's nickname? The Babe. 
And hard means more than just saying this ball is soft or hard. You don't do that in football. Brady would never say this ball is too hard, would he? Don't think of the word hard as a word. Think of it as a concept, and that's the difference. So finally, in terms of the development of baseball as a sport, round alone doesn't do it. Leather, you know, a football is leather too, doesn't do it. And small doesn't do it. Hard unifies those. A baseball had to work as something you could pitch, hit, and catch. So I think I've squeezed that one attribute as much as I can. But that is also the lesson. How deep the simplest of things in reality go. We're going to take a break. And when I come back, I can go into a totally different characteristic concerning the nature of baseball. We'll be right back. Now up to the stadium booth for some inning takeaways. Something amazing you might have missed. Inning three just revealed that there is a structure to essence. The concept of baseball, like everything else in existence, has a conceptual structure, an abstract one, not just a physical one. It is something we can discover and use in anything we do. Point two, here is what we were really doing. All these so-called obvious questions, well, they are actually revealing more and more secrets as we peel back the layers of that structure. How did we do it? By continuing to ask the obvious questions without hesitation. Inning three suggested that there's a lot more to know about baseball, and it's more than we expected. A concept modeling point. Our intuition is an abstract sense, and we use it to touch concept. It often helps us find that next, deeper layer or unique concept, like the concept of hard. And did you notice how packed or significant that one concept was? It is crazy, but reality is that way. Point four, all of the insights we gained along the way, these discrete elements become the building blocks to construct a newer, deeper understanding of baseball. And here's the most important takeaway. In your own life, some of those deeper hidden concepts will lead to insights, and those insights to innovations. It is why concept modeling is the opposite of brainstorming or thinking outside the box. We go deep, 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 and deeper into the essence of our own box, not someone else's. Fourth inning. Relationships and, yes, disruptive technology in baseball. We're back, and we're deconstructing baseball. We're closing in on the hidden concept underneath all of baseball. But for now, we're going to talk about relationships. And again, in this segment, I'm going to start out with things that are simple, even obvious. But this time, I want to show you the value of doing that in your own profession. And one of the best examples is going to be what I call baseball string theory. Literally, disruptive technology. Can disruptive technology apply to baseball? Absolutely. Popcorn peanuts, disruptive technology. Popcorn peanuts, disruptive technology. 
But first, I want to give you a side note. When I say deconstruction, I'm talking about it from a concept modeling point of view. In other words, not just the physical, but the abstract. Let me give you a simple example. In the 70s, my brother was given a 1963 black Cadillac. Those are the ones that look like Batmobiles with the fins that project out the back. How cool were they? Very. But he decided to deconstruct the car and rebuild it. I read somewhere where the average number of parts in a car are 30,000. So you can imagine what it would look like when I walked into a two-door garage and saw probably 10,000 parts spread across the garage floor. When we think about deconstruction, we usually think physical. You take the parts apart, put them on the floor, and later, after cleaning them or whatever, you put them back together. But that leaves out the abstract elements. When you talk about a car, you're talking about the abstract concept of transportation or the activity of racing or driving, right? In concept modeling, we actually focus on those abstract elements. The physical things are just ways to get down deeper into the concept elements. Because when the concept shifts, as we're going to see, everything shifts. We've also just seen an example of this. Because in baseball, we started with physical things of a bat and a ball. Now we're going to step into some relationships or abstract things. So in my model... In between the word ball and bat, I have a box, and in that box are three words, throw, hit, and catch. Now, can any three words be more rudimentary? And I know some of you may be thinking, well, that's too obvious, but change your thinking. First of all, as an example, all of the most sophisticated computer programs that track weather, that drive communications, that launch rockets, all come down to zeros and ones. In baseball, that zero and that one is a baseball and a bat. From all that stems activities. From the zeros and ones in computers, you get the activity of showing you directions while you're driving your car in real time. But then there's something else. All those activities I just mentioned, all three, are elevated into specialized athletic skills that become almost art forms, as you'll see when we talk about pitching. Now, if art forms is not enough for you, doesn't turn you on, think finances. Because players who became great at those skills, because those skills were so highly valued, they got paid well. And as we all know, some became millionaires. So fortune is part of the equation. Another part of the equation is fame. One of the better examples is the Wheaties box. So let me tell you a side note. In 1934, the very first athlete was placed on a Wheaties box, and his name was Lou Gehrig. So here's the key. From the simplicity of relationships come skills that will make some players wealthy. So in my concept model, there's a box, throw, hit, catch, and leading from that box is a line going to a circle with one word in it, glove. Amazingly, we've gone from two physical things, a bat and a ball, to activities back to a physical thing. Now, there may be some of you who are thinking, well, that's the core of baseball, a bat, a ball, and a glove. That is true today, but it was not true at the beginning of the sport. 
it took 24 years from the very first baseball game in 1846 to 1870 when they took a little step towards having a glove in baseball. That came from a catcher who got injured. So that catcher used buckskin to create a mitt and protect his hand while he was catching. We don't think about it, but imagine how many times a catcher got injured back then, even when the pitching was underhand. Actually, it was pretty difficult for them to last the entire season without injuries of any kind, considering, and I'm not sure of this fact, but the number of games played depended on the team. For some top teams, it was over 50 games a year. Try catching a ball without a mitt for 50 games. Not that easy to do. That was 1870. Five years later, in 1875, the first, quote, official mitt entered the game through Charlie Waite, who was a St. Louis player. I don't know what it is about St. Louis, but with the mitt, you see part of the heart, at least, of baseball coming from St. Louis. Kind of interesting. I'll say one thing about Charles. He had to have a little bit of courage because they called him all sorts of names for being like a wimp for using a glove. Can you imagine today baseball being played without a glove? I don't think I can. Now, the fascinating thing is that it took 74 years for the very first modern-day baseball glove to come around. So now I get into my baseball string theory, which is the invention of the modern-day glove based on disruptive technology. Do you think that baseball might have had disruptive technology? Absolutely. This is a fantastic example. So I want to do a shout out to Chris Silva, who wrote an article about the history of baseball and the glove. When I read it, he mentions that in 1919, others mentioned 1920, a Bill Doak went to the Rawlings Sporting Company with a new innovation in a baseball glove. That innovation involves, you guessed it, two strings. That simple. Going from the thumb to the index finger. So now I want you to look at it from a concept modeling point of view, or a concept point of view. That was an entire shift on the essence or nature of what a glove is, going from protection to augmentation. It was about enhancing the human hand the way computers enhance or augment our ability to process and store information. From that moment on, a new concept entered into a glove, and that's called the pocket. So imagine how good it feels today when a ball is hit so hard and it slams into the pocket of your glove. No pain, but a lot of gain. And we love that. So in terms of our podcast here or our show, when we talk about the obvious isn't, this is one of the best examples. It is not obvious that two strings could transform a product the way it did. I harbor a lot of fascination around the string theory for baseball because it's not about baseball. It's about a lesson and a skill you can take into your profession tomorrow or into your creation of new technology or a product today. Or you can take it into your creative endeavors. The idea that simple physical things can transform the main concept underneath something. When I do a podcast on technology, we're going to dive into that because it deals with disruptive technology. But for now, learn that the deconstruction of not only physical things, but conceptual things can lead to innovations. 
Why is that important? It's important to your pocketbook because Bill Doak was earning about $25,000 annually in royalties as late as the 50s. So imagine what that might have meant in real dollars and cents value at that time. What do I say about all that? Concept matters. So in my concept model, I have a box of throw, hit, and catch, and I have a line leading to another box. In that box are two words, run and score, or three words, actually, if you count the word and. But I want to look at the concept of run. Besides pitching and batting, baseball has a specialized skill that we take for granted until we don't. But there are some fans who never take it for granted, and Hall of Fame careers have been driven by this skill. And yet again, from a concept modeling point of view, it's one of those the obvious isn't things. This skill involves marrying an object to an activity. Do you remember when we were looking at a Cadillac being broken down or disassembled? That's all physical. You break down the physical things and you put the physical things back together. How about the marriage of a physical thing with an activity? From a concept modeling point of view, that becomes interesting. All sports do this. But baseball has one specific skill or activity that is unique to baseball. It has made heroes. It has made Hall of Fame players. And that skill, you are probably guessing it, is called base running. Those two simple things glued together created base stealers. We don't normally think of it that way. But you cannot pick up or touch a running you can only touch a physical thing that is running. And if you're great at base stealing, you not only became wealthy, you probably landed in the Hall of Fame. I want to talk about four of those players, starting from three, down to two, down to one, then back to the fourth one, because that fourth one is kind of an interesting player. So, his nickname is Sliding Billy. His real name was Billy, or William, Hamilton, who played between the years of 1888 and 1901. Currently, he's number three on the list of all-time base stealers. That's because he had stolen 914 bases. That's kind of cool. Listed as the number two of all-time in base stealing is a name you'll recognize, Lou Brock. Lou Brock just passed away while I was working on this podcast, so our thoughts and prayers go out to him and his family. He was great. How important is base stealing to baseball? In 1974, Lou came in second in ballot voting for the MVP for the National League. The reason? He had stolen 118 bases, which was the single season record for most stolen bases up to that moment. I believe it still stands. The excitement of seeing these guys closing in on base stealing records is one of the great things in baseball. Now, at number one on our list, and by far, is Ricky Henderson, who stole 1,406 bases in his 24-year career. Let me tell you a side note. His parents obviously loved musicians and music because part of Ricky's real name is Ricky Nelson. Yes, his parents named him after Ricky Nelson, the singer. So that's kind of fun. The second thing, which is even more fun, is that Ricky was born in the back of an Oldsmobile on the way to the hospital. Later, he would joke about it and saying, I was always fast. I couldn't wait. Now that is a fast guy. 
but remember the excitement of watching him when he got on first base because everyone in the stadium knew what he was going to do. The other team knew what he was going to do. The other players knew what he was going to do. And sure enough, he still accomplished it. That is pretty amazing. The fourth guy on our list I saved because he's considered one of the greatest players of all time. In fact, Sporting News calls him number three on their baseball's 100 greatest players list. His name, Ty Cobb. I'm going to jump back to Lou Brock for a second because it was in 1977 at Jack Murphy Stadium in San Diego that Brock beat the record that was established by Ty Cobb for most stolen bases. That number was 892. Ty Cobb was one of the early players who defined the skills needed to play the sport of baseball. Part of that was stealing bases or using his skill as a base runner. Kind of cool. So next, imagine that this podcast is actually a baseball game and perhaps in your eyes I've hit a single, maybe a double. I'm not sure. That's up to you. But in my next segment, I'm about to go down six runs. Because the likelihood is you're not going to believe a word I have to say about the deepest layer or hidden concept underneath baseball. And it might take me the rest of this podcast to catch up before the podcast ends. So I'm looking forward to it. Let's see what happens. My pitch is next. We'll be right back. Fifth inning. The hidden concept at the core of baseball. We're back and deconstructing baseball as a game. And we've come to that inning, so to speak, that's going to change the entire game. Putting it in baseball terms, I'm going to take a big swing at the core concept that lies underneath baseball. And because of that, many of you may disagree right off the bat. But in terms of this podcast, this section is a reverse of the title because this is not obvious until it is. When I say the obvious isn't, I mean it both ways. Some things are obvious and some things are not. But by the end of the day, it is all obvious. So now I'll tell you the hidden concept that underlies all of baseball in every respect. And for that reason, using concept modeling terms, it's called a transept. Something that transcends all the other concepts at the core of baseball. Something that influences all of those concepts. And that concept is numbers. I'll wait and let that sink in. Numbers. And yes, it is that simple, but it is also deep, very deep. Now, for some of you, you already sense that, but you may not know how deep, deep, and deeper that concept goes. We're about to show you. First, by numbers, I don't mean stats, or I should say, I don't mean just stats. Stats are a part of it, but only a part of it. They are just one manifestation of how numbers bubbles up from the bottom and impacts every aspect of the game. Still, you may want to point to the obvious. Don't other sports have stats? Not like baseball. Or maybe you're thinking, well, other sports involve numbers. For example, football. Football has a hundred yard long field between the goal lines, 53 and a third yard wide field, four quarters, six points for a touchdown, and one point for an extra point. And basketball, what about that? It has a set court size, 94 by 50 feet, and the rims are 10 feet high. Don't other sports involve numbers in some way? Not like baseball. And how about this? Don't other sports have scoring? Not like baseball. 
So count them. There are three strikes, and instead of going against you, they might be going against me. Some of you may want to be calling me out before I even get up to bat. Well, let's see if we can catch up. For the rest of this inning, it's all going to be about how numbers, the concept of it, is so tightly woven into the essence of baseball and making it exactly what it is today. Where do I start? Why not with our concept model? Remember, we talked about relationships, right? Throw, hit, catch. But we've already talked about catch and the glove. So now it's time to get to the core of sport, which is throw, hit, the essence of the sport. The pitcher versus batter duel. So let's go for it. You want to talk about numbers? Let's start with the pitching mound. The pitching mound, or actually the rubber, is 60 feet 6 inches from home plate. It's stuck to that distance for over 100 years, but for a reason. Today, if the pitching mound was 5 feet closer, the pitcher would get the advantage. By the way, at one time it was. It's a little complicated because a number of things were going on here. Because in the 1800s, pitching was shifting from underhand to overhand, and we forget that. It was literally going from underhand to sidearm to overhand. From running and throwing the ball to the pitcher standing in one place off a rubber instead of a large box. When all the different ways and calculations were done, the pitcher was in fact 4 feet 3 and a half inches closer to home plate than today. But keep in mind, at that time, most of it was underhand. Now today, if the pitcher was pushed back further, say five feet, the batter would get the advantage. That is the amazing thing. Baseball got to that perfected distance without science. It's only relatively recently that science looked into the numbers in baseball and came out shocked at how the numbers in baseball are precise, almost perfect. Another example is the distance between home plate and first. It's 90 feet. Amazingly, that distance is also perfect. Where would baseball be without the split-second timing involved in a double play? That precise distance makes it a regular feature of the game. Not too often, not too rare. It actually makes the double play exciting. Let me show you some other numbers, this time with pitching. Here, we really get into it. As you know, pitching is truly an art form, and it's extraordinarily so. It's amazing and actually beautiful to watch, but it's made possible by numbers. So here are just some of those numbers. 9 to 9.25, 5 to 5.75, 7.6, 108, 5.43, and 2. One and one. Then there's six. Let's go through those. Nine to 9.25 is the approximate circumference of a baseball in inches. It must not be less than nine or greater than 9.25. There's a reason for that. Five to 5.75 ounces is the weight of a baseball. It must not be less than five ounces or more than 5.75 ounces. 7.6, the average hand length stretching from the fingertips to just below the edge of the palm where you find the crease. 108, I love this one. Those are the number of red double stitches on a baseball and even the height of them can impact a curveball. 5, 4, 3, and 2. 
those are the numbers related to various pitches. Let's go through them. There is the four-seam fastball, the three-finger changeup, the two-finger fastball. I'm sort of not sure exactly why they call it two, but then there's a circle changeup in which you hold your hand like you were saying, okay, to the baseball. Five fingers are involved with that one. Then there's one. One knee must go up as the body rotates for the windup. One back. One arm must lurch back, then power forward. Six, six pages. I mentioned this before, but it's worth repeating. If you look up the rules on how to make an official baseball, it stretches six pages. Pretty amazing. For comparison, how about these numbers? 10 and 18. If you're thinking about other sports, I'm going to throw those numbers in. Those are numbers in basketball. 10. 10 feet, the height of a rim in basketball. 18. 18 inches is the width of a rim. In baseball, 17 inches is the width of home plate, but there are other numbers impacting what you know as the strike zone. And you already know this, the distance from the knees to the player's armpits, technically an inch or two below, impacts the strike zone. Can you imagine if the rim in basketball suddenly changed its height, depending on the height of a player? You'd never see that. Or can you imagine if football players were only allowed to catch a ball if it hit them between their armpits and their knees? No, you can't imagine that either. Also, I didn't know this, so I have my doubts, but it appears from data that before some new rules were implemented, the strike zone was actually proven to shrink depending on the count, like a 3-0 versus an 0-2 count. And any of you ever see a rim shrink? I didn't think so. Now, here are the numbers related to the timing within the pitcher and batter duel. And for this, I want to do a shout out to Dr. Cynthia Burr. This represents the execution of a pitch and a home run swing. Here are those numbers. Get ready. 90, 0 .4, 0 .10, 12, 48.5, 10, 38.5, 8.5 to 13.5, 30 to 25, 0.17. Let's go through them. 90, it's the speed of a 90 mile an hour fastball that we're going to use for the next calculations. 0.4 is the time that pitch going at that speed takes to reach the plate. That's four tenths of a second. 0.10 it takes a batter one-tenth of a second to actually see and locate the ball. Twelve. Twelve feet is how far the baseball has traveled in that time. Forty-eight point five. Forty-eight point five feet is how much distance the ball has left to travel. Point oh seven. Point oh seven is how long it takes a player to calculate the speed, angle, trajectory of the ball. That's seven hundredths of a second. 10. 10 feet is how much further the ball has traveled by that time. 38.5. 38.5 feet is how much more distance left the ball has to travel before it goes across home plate. 8.5 to 13.5. 8.5 to 13.5 feet is the distance the ball will travel before the batter must decide on his swing. 30. 
to 25. 30 to 25 feet is the distance left to the plate that the ball must travel once the batter has made his decision to swing or not. 0.17. Amazing. Let me say it again. 0.17 is about the time it takes to execute a home run swing. Basically, folks, that's 17 hundredths of a second. If you want to compare all this to the numbers found in other sports, let me say this. Those are only part of the numbers involved. There are numbers upon numbers you could use to calculate the dynamics. For example, there are numbers related to the strength and height of the batter, as well as the strength and height of the pitcher. There's also the rotation speed that a pitcher can put on a ball for some of the more complex pitches. That can go from 1800 to 2400 RPMs. Humidity and degrees impact the pitch. Wind speed impacts the pitch. Wind direction impacts the pitch. There's also the contact angle at which a bat hits the ball, based on a batter's swing. In baseball, it feels almost endless. And in a real way, all these numbers make the sport so pure and just stunning to watch. Here's another side note my side note, actually. In researching this, I not only got exhausted, I noticed and got a sense that some of the scientists got exhausted. You seem to get some high precision numbers on one hand, then it's kind of a fudge factor on the rest of it. Oh yeah, well the weight and the height of a pitcher also have an impact. The wind speed, the humidity, all these things have an impact. But here's the one that I just love. I love this number. And I think a lot of people who are baseball fans will also love this number. And that number is 2.9. 2.9 set against 3 to 3.2. 2.9 seconds. That is the time it took Ricky Henderson to go from first to second when he was stealing the base. That number, 2.9, is set against a number 3 to 3.2 seconds. 3 to 3.2 seconds is the time it takes to throw a pitch and the catcher to catch it and throw it down to second base. So the truth is, as the science or numbers suggest, you could not throw Ricky Henderson out as he stole bases. And history simply states emphatically, they didn't. If you want to look at precision within the sport, here is another number. 6,776. 6,776, that was the number of home runs hit in 2019. It was by far the most in league history. They even had to do a study to see if the balls were intentionally juiced up. Let me read to you what they found. The laboratory experiments using newly developed techniques showed a correlation between the drag and the seam height of a baseball, with the average seam height in 2019 smaller than 2018 by less than 0.001 inches. That's less than one one thousandth of a difference in the seam height on a baseball. That is amazing. That is how precise baseball can be. So I'm going to take a short break, and after that, we're going to continue to talk numbers. Numbers and scoring. We'll be right back. We're back and we've been talking about numbers and how they impact the sport of baseball like no other. And I suggest to you, it is not even close. This is my second attempt to hit a home run 
On the numbers aspect, that concept modeling suggests is underlying all of baseball. So I want you to imagine this. What if a commissioner of baseball came out tomorrow and said this? We're going to make a change in baseball to make it more exciting, and thus reaching a base is now going to count as one point. You know, we are tired of people getting on first and not getting credit for it. Isn't that our culture today? So we want to elevate the sport. We want to make it for today's generation. So if a player gets to first, they get a point. If they get to second, they get another point. Third, another point. And for a home run, they get four points. How exciting is that? It's not. Not to mention the outrage, not just in one town, but across the USA. Exciting? Definitely not. And that outrage wouldn't just be coming from Cooperstown. It would be coming across the USA from every baseball fanatic, even regular fan, and even the casual observer. But don't worry. It's never going to happen in baseball. If you're a fan of other sports, watch out. I know some of you may be already shouting, other sports? No way. What are you talking about? Well, guess what? Basketball already changed the point system, and they did it in 1979 with a three-point play. I don't know if you remember, there was a lot of outrage at the time, but it calmed down soon enough. And what about football? When you turn to that, I think it was in 1958 that the two-point conversion was introduced into college football, but it only became official in pro football in 1994. That is not as dramatic, but guess what? Numbers do change. A few minutes ago, I was talking about 90 feet from home plate to first base. But what if you were to change the length of a football field? Would there be an outcry if you made the football field 140 yards? It's an interesting question because a football field didn't start out as a 100-yard field. It started out as a 110-yard field from goal line to goal line. But with the introduction of the forward pass in 1905, they had to lengthen the field by creating end zones, which were introduced in 1912. But because some of the stadiums at the college level were already built and set, they had a problem doing that, expanding it. So they created a compromise. They added the 12 feet for each of the end zones, but then reduced the field from 110 to 100. So you had this confusing mix right there, but it would eventually settle on being 100 yards for the main field, goal to goal, and 10 yards for each of the end zones. For the record, baseball could change a couple of things, but they'd risk destroying the game. There is one consideration that I'm going to tell you about in a minute that might cause them to change. But here's what's interesting. You don't actually destroy football by putting in end zones. You actually enhanced it. And you don't destroy the game of basketball by adding the three-point play. In fact, it has revolutionized the game, made it more exciting, and kept, in terms of fans, the sport growing. We'll be right back. So let's go back to pitching. The ability to throw curveballs, sinkers, sliders using physics, the size of a ball, the pitcher's mound, the distance, the motion, all the energy you generate as a pitcher winds up and makes a throw is all defined and driven by numbers. It's really hard to throw a baseball at 90 miles an hour. For myself, I think it's even hard to throw it at 60 miles an hour. 80? Well, that's starting to separate the boys from the men. 
And you know the ones that can make it professionally have to get it to 95 and accurately at least most of the time, right? On the home plate side, that's where it starts to get difficult for the batter. It takes a lot of skill to hit a ball going 90 plus miles an hour. At 100, it changes the nature of the duel. The fastest pitch on record is a Nolan Ryan pitch at around 108 miles an hour. Now, some of you fans might be looking up and say, what about Chapman? Chapman did one at 105 in 2016. Some consider that the fastest pitch of all time. But did you read the footnote? Here is that footnote. The fastest ever reliably recorded by the Pitch X system. I think there's a little bit of an agenda there, don't you? Wow. Every ballpark must have one of those Pitch X systems from now on. Look, you can call it what it is. Both Chapman and Nolan are great, period. You know, in all this stuff, whenever you do the research, you always have to look for the hidden agenda. And I'll do a lot of that when I go into the history of the sport. In this podcast, we're looking at how pitching, or that as an element, is foundational to baseball. So at 90 miles an hour plus, it's very difficult to hit a ball accurately. But at 100 miles an hour, even the best professionals, the best of the best, it's no longer a skill, it is luck. That has to do with the mechanics of the human mind and body, how fast the body can work physically. A 100 mile an hour plus is a big money skill for pitchers. And if it keeps on going, 105, 108, 110, they would probably, and only under that condition, have to move the pitching mound. The curve, the slider, the sinker, a knuckleball, the changeup, and all the rest. From our concept modeling point of view, it stems from such a simple word. That's the lesson here. It stems from the word to throw, and it turns into the art form we call pitching. That is why the obvious question is so important. It's amazing. But now let's do a concept experiment, basically a thought experiment. Let's see what we can garner from doing one. We talked about round as a key attribute to a baseball. What if the ball was a different shape? What if the ball was triangle shaped or actually a little pyramid? Now you can imagine in your mind what a baseball reshaped into a pyramid would look like it would still be white with red stripes going across it. You can actually visualize that. Instead of a hard ball, it might be called a tri ball. And guess what? That name works. Or a professional pitcher, just imagine the wicked kind of knuckleball enhanced pitches they could throw using a triangular baseball. Now imagine it from the batter's side, how hard it would be to hit a tri ball, much less hit a home run. Home runs would be Almost impossible, possible, but much, much harder. So here's the problem, and it points to the nature of what the sport is, and that's why we did this experiment. With tri-ball, you count on luck more than skill, and that's the difference between a sport and a game. Baseball, sometimes called the perfect game, is perfect for displaying athleticism. It's a perfect combination. It's all brought to you by weight Wait, wait, I forgot something. You see, we get lost in all this number stuff, and I forgot the biggest proof about numbers. Numbers is also about stats. The whole point is, from day one, 
baseball was all about stats. But as I asked earlier, don't other sports have stats? Not like baseball. Football versus baseball stats. Let's take a look. When football started, you didn't even have stats. Just the scores and the sense of what happened in the game. Real stats weren't significant in football till 1932. That's 63 years after the first official game. Here's the funny thing about baseball, and this is true. The first stats appeared one year before the very first professional baseball game. That's how far ahead baseball was. It was even ahead of itself. I don't know exactly how that happened, but there have been so many additions to baseball stats throughout the years, it would take a whole show to go through them. But from a concept modeling point of view, and the obvious isn't, here are some of the key things. Every sport now has stats, but baseball had its own brand of stats. Baseball had what they called box scores. Henry Chadwick, highly influential, sometimes called the father of baseball, created box scores. The first box scores appeared in 1859 in an issue of The Clipper. Just to note it, there were stats before that, but now he had taken it to a whole new level. The second point about stats is its relationship to baseball fans. Those box scores landing in newspapers mattered. It gave people something to talk about. And yes, it is that simple. Baseball's nature was different. They had innings. That made tracking stats much easier. In terms of the fan, it allowed them to talk about those averages, those numbers, as they progressed. Some of the stats were kept till the end of the year, but over time, they began to be more and more incorporated into the box scores, those shown in newspapers. Here is the big shift with stats, and I have to give a shout out to Alan Schwartz, who points it out in the book he wrote. The biggest change comes from one player, and everyone knows who I'm talking about. Before 1919, he had been a pitcher and doing well, but his batting was pretty impressive. So they changed him from a pitcher, because you don't get to hit as much, to an outfielder, so he could focus on hitting. That year, he started to bat incredibly well. His name was Babe Ruth. His stats were so important that for the first time, stats were probably more important than the outcome of the game. Everyone was watching the stats on Babe Ruth, how many home runs he hit. Here are those numbers. In 1919, he hit 29. 1920, he jumps up to 54. 1921, 59. And for his long run, he ended up with 714 home runs. It wasn't until Hank Aaron, in an exciting year, caught up to him and finally surpassed him. How important were stats to the sport of baseball? In the late 40s, we're talking 1840s, a few baseball teams started to hire statisticians. In other words, you could use stats and player stats to actually impact the game, probably how you selected some of the players. If you ever saw the movie Moneyball, a fantastic movie with Brad Pitt, that is another later rendition of using stats to impact the quality of the game or a team. For most sports, statistics was an afterthought. The proof for me is now in soccer, which is allowing all these new stats, like how many passes a team makes in a half, into the game. I love soccer, but I also have to say this because it also sheds light on baseball. 
In soccer, there's no fan who's going to say, I believe our team is going to pass the ball 12 more times before the end of this half. It is an afterthought. It doesn't really enhance the game while you're watching it. It can tell you something about a team after, but not so much during the game. But here's the point. From the get-go, stats were being developed. New ones, bad ones, thrown in, thrown out the second half of the 1800s as baseball developed. And my gut tells me that newspapers really lived off those stats in the sports section. As a regular feature, it helped fans keep up with their favorite players and glue them to a team. It was something to talk about, something to dream about. Finally, there's a different kind of number I will be discussing at the end of part two of our podcast. And it is related to another transcendent concept, the human spirit. And that is found in the number one. One team, one player, one play. This specific one is one moment as a player steps up to the plate or onto the field and delivers not just a hit, a play, or even a home run. It is something that transcends all of that, but delivers something above every other number. That mysterious thing we call glory. Glory that we can often share. And by nature, as humans, as fans, whatever name we call it, we simply love it. I'm looking forward to that. So I hope I've hit a few runs in my attempt to catch up while being behind, but hopefully you're getting a sense of what numbers means to baseball versus other sports. But here is one final proof. When you do concept modeling, you do the concept model, you dig deep, you do the research, then you set it all down. And what you do is you go after external proof, something that shows you some insight, some proof, that you have done the model correctly. It's something that in itself is obvious. You start with the obvious and you end with it. I set down the model and started to look for that proof and I found it and it comes from the old saying about baseball that's still around today. They're always saying baseball is a game of inches. And there you have it. It's the numbers underneath baseball that make it what it truly is today. One of the best sports ever created perhaps the perfect sport. So how did I do? Did I score some runs? Did I catch up? That's really up to you. So in the next segment, I'm going to introduce a little bit concerning the history of baseball, which I think is out in left field. You know what? If I could, I might be tempted to be in the historian's faces like Earl Weaver was at times with the umpires. Maybe we'll get a taste of that next. We'll be right back. Sixth inning, why concept matters, and a look at how we can use this baseball concept model to fix the massive issues in baseball history. So let me start wrapping this game up with a request. I'm giving you a little homework to do, but don't worry, it'll take less than 30 seconds. I just need you to see some of these names, like rounders, cricket, stewball, basketball, tutball, English baseball, poison ball, and others. Just a quick look will do. I will cover most of it in part two of this podcast. But as a warm-up to the next podcast, let me show you something about the history of baseball. Here it is. Strike one. This is actually not Wikipedia's fault. 
But here is what Wikipedia says right now. Rounders is referenced in the 1744 children's book, A Little Pretty Pocket Book, where it was called Baseball. Folks, that's like saying surfing is referenced in a 1744 children's book where it was called water polo. It's either rounders or baseball. Don't say baseball, then suddenly say, oh, they really meant rounders. I don't buy that, not for a second, and you shouldn't either. Strike two. This comes from an encyclopedia. The descent of baseball from rounders seems indisputably clear-cut. Did I mention Rounders is a game from England? That last quote happens to be from Encyclopedia Britannica. Yes, that's right. Britannica, as in Britain. Oh, that Britannica. Strike three. Strike three actually breaks down into three more strikes. This is what I mean. Rounders is not the source of baseball. That is strike one. Abner Doubleday is not the creator of baseball. That is strike two. Club ball, once considered the source of baseball, is not the source of baseball. That is strike three. An important note. One historian has already inflicted serious damage on the rounders as a source of baseball theory. His name, David Block. Thank you, David Block. But for my part, in my next podcast, I hope to put a nail in that coffin. Okay, so let me get this out of the way. When it comes to the origin of American baseball, historians and researchers have gotten it wrong three times already. But I will say a lot more than three times. That's three strikes, folks. Why? So here's my stadium booth takeaways. A concept model is like a fossil for a dinosaur. You need the fossil in front of you before you try to figure out the dinosaur. Otherwise, you know what happens? Mistakes, strikes, just like the ones I just mentioned. But here is my personal note. I am not here to knock down historians, this country or that. They're all actually great. And there's a lot of pretty great work there. I am here to demonstrate a new discipline anyone listening to this can apply to your own professional or creative work. That discipline is called concept modeling, and it's about discovering, then locking down the essence of something. And I know that gets a little foggy, but real essence is found in the abstract world, not just the physical. Concept modeling, the practice of it, dictates that you set down your own ego, and I have to do it all the time and ask the obvious questions without assuming you know the answer. Why? Because the obvious actually isn't. And when you set it all down and deconstruct something from an essence point of view, which is found in the nature and structure of concept, guess what happens, folks? You arrive at something that is almost always different, much deeper, more logical, and even more beautiful, and definitely and always obvious. What is interesting about this podcast and what I just said is this. We just did that. But here's the most amazing Eureka moment for me, which happens almost all the time when you delve into abstract essence. Our very first two and crazy obvious questions from this very podcast led us to what? Bat and ball and bat ball. That gave me the next as well as the first 
question every historian must ask to find the truth. The concept model, our fossil on baseball, strongly suggests, even dictates, you need to ask this question first. Why isn't it called bat ball? That means when I started my review on the origin of baseball, I was not looking for baseball. I was looking for bat ball. And as it turns out, that simple twist, that simple question, radically changed how I'd look at the history and how I would uncover many of the mistakes. And it led me to the truth about the origin of American baseball. One hint, American baseball does not come from Europe. That becomes obvious once you have a concept model on baseball in front of you. In part two of our podcast, we're going to use concept or the discipline of concept modeling to look at the history on the origin of baseball. And for the next podcast, I promise you this, the secret to unlocking the missteps in the history of baseball may also come from a massively unlikely source, the comedy duo of Abbott and Costello. Now, how cool is that? Find out. In the meantime, just remember the O in obvious. We just went full circle because we started with the obvious and we end with the obvious. The obvious isn't. I'm Winston Perez, your host and founder of the Discipline of Concept Modeling. If you want to show support, you can do so by buying my book online or places like Barnes & Noble or on my website, conceptmodeling.com. Some references made in this podcast. Chris Silva's The Fascinating History of the Baseball Glove, the postgame, July 12, 2011. Dr. Cynthia Burr, The Science Behind Baseball, Science Journer. Alan Schwartz, A Numbers Revolution, Baseball America, July 8, 2004. David Block, Baseball Before We Knew It, 2006, Bison Press, University of Nebraska. Copyright 2020, Winston Perez. All rights reserved. No portion of this podcast may be used in any manner without the expressed written permission or consent of Winston Perez. Some elements of this podcast come from Winston Perez's book concerning the nature and structure of concept. Popcorn, peanuts, disruptive technology. Popcorn, peanuts, disruptive technology.